Before we read this, though, uh, I, I thought about how to set up what we're about to read. And um, this is the best way that I could set this up. You know sometimes when you are in front of your computer and uh, you're on Facebook, and you have the little, you know, plus one red notification, and you go, oh, a friend request. I got a friend request. And you click it, and it's your mom. Has that ever happened to you before? Where it's like, why is my, okay, my mom just got Facebook, and now she's asking to be my friend. And that feeling that you have is like, you, you shouldn't be here right now. And I'm guessing that you may have the same feeling tonight. Because what we're going to look at is a passage where Jesus talks about sex. And you, have, you may have that feeling where it's like, Jesus, you, you shouldn't be here. Like, this is a realm of life that I don't feel comfortable with you, like talking about. So, but what, we're, what we've been doing every single week this semester in RUF is we've been exploring Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is his description of what it looks like to be a community of people that submit their lives to him as their king in every aspect of their life, which includes our sexuality. So I'm going to go ahead and read it, and we'll jump in and talk about it. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray before we consider it together. Father, we would ask uh, for your help. We we always, we always need your help. Uh, And I feel especially tonight when when uh, we talk about a topic that, for so many for so many of us, um, just has feelings of great shame, feelings of great guilt, feelings of uh, immense confusion. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would be gentle with us, that your spirit would uh, attend your word and uh, would would care for our hearts and and would free us and would liberate us by your grace. And so we would ask that you would help us, that would you teach us, would you give us eyes to see uh, that which is really beautiful and that which is really good and and that which is really freeing. And so uh, that's our prayer for tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... uh, This is a pretty intense passage, as you picked up on from when we just read it, and so we're just going to jump in and talk about it, because what this passage really holds out for you is a vision of what sex is and what sex is intended to be. But the way that this passage gets at this issue is is by rather talking about what the counterfeit version of sex is, the the, uh, perversion of sex, what we're just going to call for the rest of tonight, sexual sin. So what I want to do is I want to look at sexual sin as a topic from this passage from four different angles. First thing we're going to look at is the nature of sexual sin. In other words, just what it is. Then we're going to look at the threat of sexual sin, what it threatens to do to you. And thirdly, we'll look at um, the res- our response to sexual sin. In other words, what we're to do to it. And then lastly, we're going to look at the heart behind sexual sin why we all struggle with this so much. 
So four things. The nature, the threat, our response, and then the heart. Cool? You with me? Yeah. Okay. Let's go. First thing, the nature of sexual sin. Okay. Remember what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount at this point. Last week we began to set this up and what he does... From this point on through the rest of Matthew chapter 5 is he takes examples from the Old Testament law and, and highlights them to say, look, this law goes way deeper and it's way more complex than you think it does. In other words, you think you understand the Bible, but you don't. And he does that again tonight uh, by looking at um, the seventh commandment. Look at verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Quotes the Old Testament. Seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Now, Christianity is not unique when it comes to the sexual ethic of adultery being a bad thing. I mean, every other religion in the world agrees. And actually, I don't even think that you have to be a spiritual person to recognize kind of the principle behind this particular commandment. This is why uh, it feels so wrong if someone were to go outside of their romantic commitments to find... uh, sexual pleasure or a relationship somewhere else other than their romantic commitments. This is why when someone cheats on you, you're unbelievably wounded and hurt. When someone that you're in a relationship with is flirting with somebody else, you get angry. This is the principle. Every religion recognizes it. You don't have to be spiritual to recognize it. But what Jesus does is he says, okay, sexual sin, sex outside of marriage, it it's, seems simple, but it goes a lot deeper. It goes straight to your heart as well. <clears throat> Look at verse 28. He says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, look, this goes to your heart. This is not just about your actions. This goes to your heart. This goes to your mind as well. To look at a woman with lustful intent is to be guilty of adultery, Jesus says, is to be guilty of sexual sin. Now, what in the world is he talking about? What does that mean? He does not mean to look at another human being and to find them attractive is sinful. Nor does he mean to have any sexual desire at all is sinful. So what does he mean? What does he mean when he says lustful intent? Because that's kind of the million-dollar phrase here. Uh, Well, I'm getting some help from this uh, from another pastor by the name of Tim Keller. He's a pastor up in New York City. And um, uh, he basically says that that word, lustful intent, is the same word that gets translated elsewhere as greed. It's the same idea behind the word greed. So let's think about what greed is. What is greed? Is it wrong to want money? Is it wrong to have money? No. But what is greed? Greed has three kind of components to it that makes it greed. The first component about greed is that it's selfish. You know, if you want a whole bunch of money, you don't want it to give it away. You want it for you. It's it's intrinsically selfish. Greed, Greed is selfish. The second component about greed is that it is addicting. You have to have it. You have to have money. And so to get money, you cut corners. uh, You become a workaholic. You lie to get it. You cheat on your taxes. uh, You trample over other people to get it. All of these sort of moral compromises show that there's a deeper addiction going on with greed. The third component of greed uh, is that it entails fantasy where you're always thinking about and fantasizing about what you want next, what you're going to get next. So, okay, you put those three components together and say, this is, what, this is what greed is. It's selfish, it's addictive, and it entails fantasy. 
So how does these three components relate to sexual sin? How is lust, lustful intent, sexual sin, these three things? Well, it's not that hard to piece together. How is, okay, so how is first sexual sin selfish? Well, it's selfish in the sense that when you look at somebody and say, I want to have sex with that person, I want to connect with that person either physically or emotionally, it's not because I want to please them, it's because I want them to please me. I want to use them, I want to consume them in order to get my needs met. I mean, think about, okay, we're just going to say it, think about porn and masturbation. Think about how intrinsically selfish that is. There's, there's not even another human present. It's just you. It's just you having sex with yourself. It's, it's the epitome of selfishness. So, so sexual sin is intrinsically selfish. How is it addicting? Well, uh, I don't think you have to connect the dots here because I'm sure 99% of this room in some way struggles with some form of sexual addiction where you uh, cannot stop messing around with your boyfriend or girlfriend no matter how many times you stop, try to stop, no matter how many rules you put in place, no matter how many provisions you do, uh, you can't stop looking at porn no matter how many accountability partners you've kind of surrounded your life with. It's addictive, selfish, addictive, and it entails fantasy. Of course, not hard to connect the dots here either, where you, where you let your imagination go to places that it shouldn't, where you fantasize and think about and, and let your desires be captured in your imagination about what it would look like to connect with that person physically, sexually, or emotionally. So, okay, you put all this together, and Jesus is kind of unpacking. Here's, here's the nature of sexual sin. Broadly speaking, it, it is any form of sex outside of marriage. Broadly speaking. But Jesus says it's much more narrow than that. It's much more specific because the idea of sexual sin extends even to your heart, even to your mind, to your imagination, to your desires. That's the nature of sexual sin. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, what's the big deal? What what is the harm in me privately, personally, looking at pornography myself? It's not hurting anybody else. What's wrong with me enjoying sort of the sexual benefits of a relationship of someone I'm, I'm committed to? What's the big deal? Okay, well, Jesus explains what's the big deal. Let's look at the threat of sexual sin. Second thing, verse 29, Jesus says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, here's what he's saying. He is saying uh, it's better to gouge out your eye and to cut off your hand than to not fight against it and therefore go to hell. Now, we're going to talk about what that means in a second. So don't run out and hurt yourself before we get there. (laughs) But what he's basically saying, here's the contrast he's making. He's saying, you fight against this or it drags you into hell itself. It's either trying to kill you or you have to kill it. This is a kill or be killed scenario. Your very life is on the line, Jesus is saying. And and so what he's doing here is he's saying, look, your sexual issues are not just little problems. These aren't just kind of bad habits that we've kind of gotten ourselves into. He's saying sexual sin is trying to destroy you. And the issue is you either destroy it or it destroys you. That's the threat. Okay, now that may seem a little extreme, but let's, let's unpack that in a practical sense. Because I think... There are probably two forms of sexual sin that are 
rampant on this campus. So let's just take each of these and dissect them and explain why these things are so damaging and so destructive. The first, we'll just revisit it again, pornography. This is, you know, the issue that is dominating this campus, this culture, this world. And, by the way, this is not just a male issue. The fastest growing users of pornography is women. And so this, this kind of goes both ways. So I'm not, just, I'm not just talking to the guys when we talk about pornography. So what's the threat with pornography? What's the threat of it to you? It's just you, you're alone, you and a computer, what's the big deal? Well, I was going to list like four or five things, but for the sake of time, we're just going to do two. I want to just show you two threats that pornography threatens you with. Here's the first, and you're not going to believe me right now, but you will in five years. The first threat is that it kills your sexual desire for real people. That's the first threat of pornography, is that it threatens to kill your sexual desire for real human people. Let me explain. A few years ago, there was a a woman by the name of Naomi Wolf, who's not a Christian, and she wrote an article called The Porn Myth. Back in the day when kind of technology was taken off and, and the accessibility to porn was just kind of going through the roof, everybody was afraid that all these men looking at porn, they were going to turn into like sex crazed like monsters and just want to have sex with everybody. And so it was like this huge concern. But her argument was it's actually going to do the opposite. The more people look at porn, the less they're going to want to have sex with real human beings. And her argument was how can someone who has real imperfections and blemishes and skin pores and wrinkles compare with something that's been airbrushed and altered? And so the whole point of her article is to say the more images people become attracted to, the less attracted they're going to be to real humans. They're just, the way that her article puts it is human beings become just bad porn at the end of the day. Now, there's actually been a ton of scientific research surrounding this particular issue. You can find this stuff on, uh, find this research online. There's a few TED Talks that are done about how pornography actually rewires your brain. Here's how this works. When you look at porn, basically there are neurological pathways that are getting created in your brain. So what happens is, let's say you want the rush of sex, you want the the release of sex, and and you are looking at porn to get it. You're training your mind, you're training your body to to say that the only way that I'm going to get that sort of sexual release, that sort of sexual feeling is through porn. And so your brain becomes rewired in such a way that that's all that you want. All you want is porn instead of actual human beings. If you don't believe me, uh, let's talk about John Mayer for a second. Uh, John Mayer uh, did an interview with Playboy magazine a number of years ago. I don't subscribe to that magazine. I, um, you can read this interview online. It's unbelievably informative because what he does is he, he is shockingly honest. Because what he says in this interview, I'm not lying, is he says, point blank, flat out, I prefer masturbation than to having sex with other people. This is John Mayer. I mean, my guess is, I don't know, my guess is he could probably be in relationships with really attractive people. And he is saying, I mean, porn has so rewired his brain where he says, I will pass on the supermodels and I'll just have sex with myself instead. And I actually prefer that. I mean, do you see how 
I mean, insane that is? And, and, okay, if you don't believe me, uh, I'm, I have close... I have close personal friends that this is playing out in their marriages now. Because for years, they've trained themselves into thinking that that sex is a a selfish act. And they actually prefer, I'm not lying, they prefer masturbating than to having sex with their wife. And of course, when this begins to happen in your marriage, it's like a nuclear bomb going off inside of it. Because what happens is the guy doesn't want to engage physically with his wife, and so he's being propelled away from her. And she, of course, is being filled with all kinds of insecurity. And now she's looking for affection and affirmation outside of the relationship to find other people besides him. And so what porn is doing is it's pushing both of them outside of, away from each other. I mean, porn, I'm telling you, Jesus is saying sexual sin is destructive. It will destroy you. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your desire to have sex with real human beings, with real flesh and blood people. You, you may think I'm crazy right now. You may not believe me. Give me five years. Get married and let's see what happens. But let's look at the second one. The second thing, uh, the second kind of threat of pornography is that it crushes the opposite sex. It crushes the opposite sex. I don't know exactly how women, women looking at porn affects men. But I do know how men looking at porn affects women. Because what happens is women feel that if I'm going to compete with pornography to get a guy's attention, uh, that means that there's a whole lot of pressure now. There's a whole lot of pressure to accommodate the style and the appearance of the images that's being presented in pornography. And so, of course, that gives rise to eating disorders. Uh, that that, that um, makes women compromise in the sense that they feel like they've got to wear more revealing clothing. They, they've got to um, cut back on their maybe sexual standards, their sexual ethics in order to get a guy's attention because they're competing with porn. And so it's, it's objectifying women and it's crushing them into the ground. You know, all I want you to see is that if you think me looking at a computer, me looking at an image, me looking at a video is not affecting anybody but me, you're crazy. You're, cr- you're out of touch with reality. It's affecting everything. It's affecting your future sex life. It's affecting your current sex life. It- it's affecting uh, the opposite sex. It's damaging and destructing. I, mean, I can't think of anything more corrosive, more destructive in our culture right now. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm not lying. It's out to kill you. It's out to destroy you. So you have to destroy it first. That's the first major kind of sexual sin issue on this campus, I think. Pornography. Let's look at the second one before we move to the third point. The second kind of major threat I want to look at is, I don't, I don't know the right word to say it, and I know the, the word that I've chosen feels very like 1945-ish, so just forgive me. The word is, phrase is, premarital sex. And what I mean by that is basically any form of sexual activity that's been taking place outside of marriage. Hooking up, making out for four hours on the couch, uh, doing everything sexually except actual having sex, whatever you want to call it, premarital sex. Now, before you write me off as a wacko fundamentalist, let, let's think about this. Think about this for a second. Think about what sex is. Sex is designed, I believe, and you will experience, to draw you to each other emotionally. Sex is something that that connects your emotions to each other. And so the more physical stuff happens, the more 
emotional stuff happens. This is why, uh, let's say you meet somebody at a party and you immediately start making out and then you jump into a relationship later or maybe you start dating and you kind of crank up the physical stuff really quickly. That's why at the end of like two weeks, you're already telling each other that you love each other. And everybody else looking in on y'all's relationship is thinking, y'all are crazy because you don't love each other. Because you don't know each other. You've known each other for two weeks. All you mean when you say I love you is I love the way that you make me feel. You're basically saying I love me. I love the way that I use you to the way that it makes me feel. Now, you go a step further. If you're not bound in marriage, meaning if there's not some sort of permanent glue that's holding y'all together, y'all's commitment to each other, this means that there's always a sense of insecurity in your relationship. You know this from your your dating relationships. There's always that nagging insecurity in the back of your mind to say, they may break up with me. They may leave me for whatever reason. And therefore, the pressure is on in dating relationships to make it exciting and make it interesting and make it engaging. Because if you're not always kind of performing and having the relationship be awesome, then they're just going to leave you an upgrade to somebody else. And that relates to sex as well. Because sex then becomes basically marketing. You're basically just marketing yourself to the other. Sex becomes a PR campaign to try to get the other person to stay with you. And there's always this concern of, well, what if the sex wasn't that great? What if it was awkward? What if it was not pleasurable? Then there is fear that the other person is going to leave and upgrade to somebody else. So sex becomes a performance to get the other person to stay with you. And therefore, sex is selfish. It's not about them. It's about keeping them. You see what I'm saying? So what happens, I mean, so think about a relationship that's like this. You've got two people that are radically selfish, and that selfishness is going unchecked, like two parasites stuck to each other, trying to suck the life out of the other one. you're, um, You're filled with insecurity. You're filled with marketing, performing. How healthy is a relationship like this? I mean, that's why you're having these massive blow-up fights in the way that you do. Now, some of you try to stop this process and, and uh, you know, you mess up physically, mess up sexually, sexually, and you have that kind of like guilt in the pit of your stomach. You're just like, oh, we did it again. And so what you do is then you try to fix it. So you put all these new rules in place, and four days later you break all those rules. <laughs> and so now you have a relationship with the insecurity, with the selfishness, with the PR, and now just tons of guilt onto it as well. I mean, how unhealthy is that relationship? Jesus is saying, look, Sex with each other outside of marriage, it's destructive. It it will kill you. It will blow up your relationships. Jesus says you either kill it or it is going to kill you. Now, before we go to kind of, okay, what do we do about this? What's our response? I I heard a really interesting point um, from Matt Chandler, who is a a pastor down in Texas. He's kind of a famous guy now. Uh, And he said this, which I thought was really interesting. He said... Okay, if you look at the culture's view of sex, and maybe our campus's approach to sex, if our culture's approach to sex was creating healthy relationships, was was providing environments where children were really flourishing, where you could really raise children in a safe, uh, flourishing environment, that, that it was fixing our loneliness issue, it was kind of bringing in life to our world, then maybe we would need to look at the Bible's view of sex and say, this movie is outdated, we need to kind of rethink this. But the reality is, I mean, all data across the board, secular and religious, shows that our culture's understanding of sex is creating this wake of damage 
just destructiveness everywhere. We're, to- we're more lonely, we're more addicted, relationships are more messy. I think that's an interesting point. Okay, well, let's look at the last, or the, the third thing. What do we do about this? What's our, what's our response to this? If that's the nature of sexual sin, and that's the threat of it, then what should be our response? Well, if you look at verse 29 and 30, as I mentioned a second ago, Jesus says, well, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out of your face. If your hand causes you to sin, uh, chop it off. Now, what in the world is he talking about? No, he is not speaking literally. Thank you, Jesus, for that. <laughs> what he, but, but what is he doing, though? Because he's, he doesn't mean nothing by talking like this. He's not just kind of being over the top. So what does he mean? Here's what he means. He means that your fight against sin, specifically in this context, sexual sin, requires you to take drastic measures. It requires you to take drastic, costly, painful, uncomfortable measures to fight against it. This is what it looks like to kill it, is you have to chop it off, and chopping something off is very painful. But he says the way that you do that, the reason why you do that is that it saves your life. The best illustration that I can think of of this is the story of Aaron Rolston. Rolston, however you pronounce that. It's the story of 127 hours. If you've seen the movie. If you haven't, uh, here's a quick recap. This guy named Aaron, we'll call him Aaron, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Aaron is, this is back in 2003. He's hiking, he's doing uh, some mountain climbing in Utah. And he's descending down this kind of little cavern thing. And as he's descending down, this 800-pound boulder becomes dislodged and crushes his right hand, pinning him against the wall. And now he's stuck. And of course, he cannot remove his hand and he can't push back a 800-pound boulder. So he hangs there for five days drinking the last little bit of his water very slowly, eating the last little bit of his food. He runs out of water, starts drinking his own urine. And he realizes, he realizes no one's coming after me because I didn't tell anybody that I'm out here. And I've got a choice. I can either hang here and starve or become dehydrated and die, or I can save my life. But the way that I have to save my life is I've got to get rid of this hand. So what he does, he realizes he has, he has a two-inch little blade that he, ha- that he has with him. Two inches. And he realizes, okay, if I cut through my arm, I'm going to get to bone, and this little knife will not be able to cut through bone. So I've got to break my bone first. So he somehow uses torque and cracks and breaks his own arm, pierces through, and begins to saw off his arm at the limb. This is a true story. Unbelievable. Cuts, amputates his arm off, and then descends another 60 feet down kind of the canyon wall to come to safety. Now, here's the picture. Here's the picture. He looks at the situation and says, this is something that if I keep, it will kill me. If I keep my hand, it will kill me. I will die. If I want to save my life, I'm going to have to do something that is bloody, that is painful, that is insane, but he does it and he saves his life. Here's what it looks like for the Christian. The Christian who follows Jesus looks at his or her life and says, okay, if there's something in my life that is preventing my connection with Jesus, if there's something in my life that is damaging my soul, I'm going to do self-surgery. 
I'm going to amputate this part of my life out. Here's what this looks like practically. I've got a close friend who struggled for years uh, with an addiction to pornography. And when he, uh, this was a few years ago, when uh, I guess everybody started to get smartphones. Not every, a lot of people. If you don't have one, it's okay. Ish, um, but he uh, he realized okay so so his um, his struggles with pornography he he began to notice the pattern that whenever his wife and kids would leave like on a weekend to go to visit her family or go to visit friends or whatever that was the time when he was really uh, uh, more tempted to look at porn they didn't have internet they, you know he couldn't access it on his computer but he could access it on his phone and so he began to realize okay I'm I'm just when my when my wife's gone on the weekend. I'm just looking at it all the time on my phone. So what he realized, okay, for me to chop off my hand, as it were, to get this out of my life, on Friday, if he knew his wife was going out of town that weekend, he'd leave his phone at the office, go home, and have no ability to contact his wife. His wife had no ability to contact him. They have three kids. Incredibly inconvenient. You know, what if something were to happen? It was a huge hassle. The wife was, you know, totally annoyed by it. But it was like, okay, this is what has to happen. If this is something that's destroying my life, destroying my marriage, destroying my relationship with Jesus, I've got to make uncomfortable sacrifices like that. It's, it's got to cost me something. And so I'm, I'm leaving the phone behind, even though it's a huge headache. So what does this look like for you? I think this means you have to get a porn blocker on your computer and your phone. I think you just have to. It's not in the Bible, but you have to. I think this means that if you know that there are certain places of temptation, you avoid them. You know, if there are certain times of the day or the night that when I'm alone with this particular person, things just go downhill, you carve that. You say, I'm not not going to be with you at that time. But my dad used to say, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. (laughs) I think he's right. I think that's in Proverbs somewhere. But what else does this mean? I, I think this means that um, you tell your close, trusted friends about your struggles, about your addiction. Will that be embarrassing? Maybe. But what, will it help to have other people engage in the fight with you? Yeah, of course. I think this also means that if you're in a relationship with another person that is dominated by sexual sin, sexual immorality that you end the relationship, that you cut it out of your life. And if, you, and if your response is, whoa, 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 that, that's too, that's, that's too dry. I love this person. I want to be with this person. Then my response to you is, then get married. I mean, that, that's a biblical reason. First Corinthians 7, you can look it up. Paul says, if you can't control your sexual temptation, then you don't need to get married. That's a reason, not the reason why you should get married. <laughs> but it's in the Bible. <laughs> Now, if you come back and say, well, we're still in school, our parents would go crazy, they wouldn't let us, we don't have enough money, what you're basically saying is, I want to fight the sin in my life, but not that bad. And Jesus is saying, you don't get that option. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, is to take ferocious, costly, painful, bloody steps to fighting the sin in your life. So what is it for you? What is it in your life that you need to carve out and say no to? Now, I could, we could stop right here and just close in prayer and be done. But my guess is if I did that, uh, I would probably be doing you a disservice. Because you could, 
theoretically be experiencing this passage and be experiencing me right now as saying this. Okay, point one, here's what sexual sin is. Point two, feel really guilty about it. Point three, stop it. (laughs) All right, let's close in prayer. If that's that's your experience, I'm going to feel a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, and then I'm going to try to stop it. You've missed the point. Because as we have seen week in and week out, Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is not just to change your behavior. He's not after behavior modification. He is after your heart. So let's look at this last thing, the heart behind our sexual sin. And we'll be quick on this. If you look at verse 28, again, the word that Jesus uses for lustful intent, literally, the literal translation means over-desire. Not desire, like I'm in, kind of in the mood for cookout. It's over-desire, an inflated desire, an obsession. Now, here's the question, though. I think this is interesting. Why is it that sex is the thing that is so over-desired in our culture and on our campus? Why is sex the thing that, is, that we obsess about? I mean, why not Pop-Tarts or something? I mean, why, why sex, not something else? Well, I think it's really interesting. And, and the way that to kind of get at this... Um, if you, if you came in earlier, we were listening to the Avid Brothers. And the Avid Brothers have this song, Paranoia in B-flat major. I was corrected about that earlier. It's not B major, B-flat major. Paranoia in B-flat major. They've got this amazing line. And the line goes, I got secrets from you, and you got secrets from me. Because you're so worried about what I'm going to think. Baby, I'm worried too. I mean, that is brilliant. Because what they're saying is... We are so afraid of what the other person is going to think about us that we've got secrets. We keep part of us hidden, and we only show the good parts. Now, that's tapping into something really deep in your soul. And actually, Donald Miller, uh, who's the author of um, a book that was crazy famous a few years ago, Blue Light Jazz, he articulates it uh, a lot more directly. Let me just read you this quote. He says this. He says, I've had 50 people tell me that I fear intimacy. And it's true. I fear what people will think of me. And that's the reason I don't date very often. People really like me a lot when they only know me a little. But I have this great fear that if they knew me a lot, they wouldn't like me. That's the number one thing that scares me about having a wife. Because she would have to know me pretty well in order to marry me. And I think if she got to know me pretty well, she wouldn't like me anymore. That is unbelievably honest and insightful. Because what he's getting at, and what the Ava brothers are getting at, is that the thing that you want the most is the same exact thing that you're absolutely terrified of. And that is to be known. The thing that you want in the core of who you are is to be known for all that you are, but but you're absolutely terrified of someone ever really knowing you that deeply, all the way down to the bottom, everything about you. Because if they did, they'd reject you. They wouldn't like you. And so they're getting at this idea that if I'm known, I'm going to be rejected. And here's where sex comes into this. Because sex holds out the possibility to you to be radically known by another human being. To be completely naked, completely vulnerable, and not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, personally. To have somebody know you and see you all the way down to the bottom of who you are. And at the same time, to not reject you. But to not not even tolerate you, but to be enraptured with you. 
to be passionately enjoying you. I mean, don't you see, sex is this picture that holds out for us this promise that maybe I will be known and maybe I will be loved at the same time. It goes way deeper than just the physical urges. It goes deeper into your soul. Because this is what you want. You want this and I want this. I want to be known to the bottom of who I am and I want to be loved and not rejected. And sex seems to hold out that promise. And actually, that's a very similar way to the way that God loves you. Because what happens? God sends his son Jesus to come and to be amputated on the cross, mutilated on the cross for people that are sexual addicts. For people that are sexual screw-ups like you and me. And what the cross communicates to you is two things at the same time. On the one hand, the cross communicates to you that he knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you've desired. He knows the ways that you've used people in the past, the way that you're using people right now. He knows all of your sexual history, all of your sexual baggage. And because he knows you, he had to die for you. The cross holds out this one hand and says, look, Because I so know you, I had to die for you. Someone had to pay for all of that. And yet, on the other hand, the cross also says to you, you are deeply loved. You are so known that he had to die for you, but yet you are so loved and treasured that he was glad to die for you. God would rather have his son crushed on the cross than for you to be crushed on the cross. And and when you begin to see that the gospel holds out for you this promise of hitting something deep in your gut, of being known and being loved at the same time, then that radically revolutionizes how you think about sex. You no longer over-desire it. It just becomes something that you just really look forward to with your spouse. Really look forward to with your spouse. But it's no longer your savior. You no longer try to get from it what only God can provide for you. Don't you see that when the gospel comes in, it radically changes your heart, and then it changes your behavior, then it changes your life. I'll end with this. Um, When I used to live in Charlotte, me and a friend would meet up every now and then at this all-you-can-eat sushi buffet place called Roussan's, if you've ever been there. See that hand? And what we would do is we'd plan this in advance. And so I knew when the day was coming, I knew when we would go to this all-you-can-eat sushi buffet place. And so if you're anything like me, when you know that's coming, you don't eat for the entire day. It's like you're gearing up. I'm trying to create cavernous spaces in my stomach to cram as much raw fish as I possibly can into it. And so when we would get there, we would walk through the door and be completely ravenous and just you know we'd sit down and just crush the buffet i mean we would just own it and just just destroy it eat everything that we could you know touch and what happened (laughs) by the end you know what happens when you eat so much that when you're so filled up that food is almost kind of gross to you you know what i'm talking about especially when it's raw fish that you just got stuffed on but here's my point when you're empty when you're hungry When you're empty on the inside, you are so ravenous, you will look to anything to fill you up. And when you are filled, you don't relate to food in the same way. It works the same way with the gospel. When the gospel gets into your soul and into your heart and into your gut, you become so filled up by the reality that God knows everything about you. Everything that's ugly, everything that's shameful, everything that's messy, and yet he doesn't reject you, but he embraces you and he loves you. When that begins to fill you up, 
you no longer look at the sex the same way. Sure, you enjoy it. It's great. It's a good gift. But you don't look to it as your Savior. Let me pray. Father, would you, by your mercy, give us fresh repentance to come to you to turn from things that are so alluring and yet, as we know firsthand, are so destructive. Things that just leave us empty, things that leave us feeling guilty, things that leave us feeling dirty. Would you give us fresh repentance to turn and to find the, the welcoming embrace of a Savior who loves dirty, messy, shameful people? Father, we are so grateful that the gospel is the good news that, that you don't love people that haven't screwed up, people that are put together, people that have never messed up in this way, but that you love really broken people, really people uh, like me who have uh, sexual baggage as well, things that I've done that I regret, things that um, I still struggle with shame over. And Father, I know if these folks are anything like me, uh, they need a Savior and they need fresh repentance. And so would you grant it? And would you give us eyes to see the beauty and the glory of being known and loved at the same time, only found in the gospel? And that's our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.